Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Good morning, everyone. So glad you came here. We thank uh, Faith Community Church for allowing us to meet here, for Grace School of Theology for hosting the event and doing the planning, and um, appreciate you coming. I'm just wondering, how many are here at a Free Grace Alliance conference of any kind for the very first time? Never been to a Free Grace Alliance conference? Gee, that's about, what, 60, 70%. That's really good, very encouraging. Roger and I just came from Oregon where we did another regional Free Grace Alliance conference, and uh, things a little more casual there, uh, so I kind of dressed in between. And uh, also, I forgot my belt, so... (laughs) Uh, but we, we uh, have our annual conference up in the Dallas area, usually uh, once a year in October. So uh, we realize you're not going to come to something you really don't know what it is. So here we are, and uh, you can find out a little bit more about us through the day. So glad you're here. It's always a cultural question of what to do. I just came from three trips in the Far East in January and February. And um, in the Far East, they, they do things quite different. Uh, for example, usually... In the Far East, you begin a message with an apology, whereas in the West, you begin your message with a joke. So I'm still somewhere in between, so I just apologize today. I don't have a joke. Um, I'll just dive right in, if you don't mind. Um, I want to talk to you today about something I call a truth, be truth, but I want to give credit to to Dr. David Anderson, because I just heard him one time in a message talking about the free grace message using the term A truth, B truth, and it stuck with me. And you know what? Everywhere I've used it in the world to teach the difference between salvation truth and sanctification truth, which is what we're talking about, uh, it has stuck with people. And if you can go away with the ability to look at scriptures with that approach or that paradigm in mind, uh, I think you'll It'll force your ticket here, okay? Uh, So, A truth and B truth. And the point is, is that distinctions make a big difference in the scriptures. And when we don't make distinctions, uh, we get into a lot of trouble. Distinctions make a big difference. Even distinctions down to a letter or a word. And the failure to do this can lead you down a whole different theological path if you're not careful. For example, the difference a letter can make, uh, the difference between a theist, someone who believes in God, or an atheist, someone who does not believe in God, or moral, someone who is moral, or someone who is without morals, amoral. Sometimes in the scriptures, even a letter, or plural, or singular, makes a great difference. We could give you examples like Galatians 3.16, not, Paul says, not to seeds, but seed as of one. Uh, So he even looks at what we would call one letter, but to him a very small distinction in the Hebrew language. I like what um, Mark Twain said. The difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Words do make a difference. They are very important. And seeing distinctions in Scripture is very important. And so I want to talk to you about the A truth, B truth distinction. And this chart helps you kind of get your mind around basically what we're talking about. When we say a truth, 
we're talking about salvation itself, justification salvation, and B truth would be discipleship or Christian life issues. Okay? Uh, so you have the difference between justification, our initial salvation, and sanctification, which is our ongoing progressive salvation. Uh, a truth is about spiritual birth, which happens in an instant. And B, truth is about spiritual growth, which happens over a lifetime. You're starting to see the difference? Okay. A, truth is when we establish a relationship with God. B, truth is when we develop that fellowship with God that Pastor Scott was talking about. A, truth is a gift. A gift is always free, right? B, truth is about the prize. A prize is something you have to earn or work for. Okay? Now, I could quit right now, and if you remember these distinctions, we've done our job today. But you would feel cheated, so we'll go on. This is so important for Christians to understand, because if you don't, you have all kinds of problems. Some things that blur distinctions, and when people look at a word or a scripture, or sometimes we have theological bias. In fact, I would say we always have theological bias. Nobody is totally objective when looking at the scriptures. But often there are traditional assumptions about Bible passages. And we might give you some examples in a little while. But I, what I mean by assumptions is that, well, that we just proof text a verse. We don't think about what it really means. We're not really using the context. Uh, we're just throwing out a verse. And we've never really thought through, but we've always heard that verse. And then poor Bible study message, methods, which is at the root of all wrong interpretations in theology, I believe. Uh, but we should know our Bible study methods and um, especially the use of context. So what happens when we don't see the distinctions? Um, when we don't see the distinctions, the gospel is corrupted. <clears throat> and some examples of that today would be this whole issue of lordship salvation, for example. What lordship salvation, you know, says is that in order to be saved, a person must surrender their lives, commit their lives totally to Jesus Christ, and then live in obedience to him to show that they are Christians. It's basically lordship salvation. Uh, what they have done is they've taken discipleship truth, and they've brought it and ported it into salvation truth. They've crossed the line from B truth and brought it into A truth, and it has changed the gospel. So the conditions for discipleship in the New Testament, they say, are the conditions for salvation. In fact, they say there's no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple. Every Christian is a disciple because every Christian is committed, you see? And they've got this whole theology, and it's a very popular view. It's very widespread, and uh, that's why I chose to wrote, write my doctoral dissertation, which is available out there on that subject because today even um, it's causing quite... A lot of problems. Reformed Calvinism is basically the same approach because Lordship Salvation, they're kind of partners. Reformed Calvinism uh, has the same thing about confusing A truth and B truth, especially in the perseverance of the saints. They're P in the tulip, T-U-L-I-P, perseverance of the saints. Unless you continuously work and die living in faith and obedience, you're not really a Christian to begin with. So they've taken performance, again, Christian truth, and brought it into the a truth or as a condition of salvation arminianism does it that's the belief that you can lose your salvation the emphasis is on man's uh will 
And if you believe, then you can unbelieve. And if you severely sin, you lose your salvation. Nobody has the definitive list, it seems. But uh, again, they've taken the B side of Christian truth and uh, brought it into salvation side because performance now impinges upon salvation. And legalism does the same thing. Legalism is the idea that what we, we, we have to do certain things to gain acceptance with God, to find acceptance with God. And of course, uh, that again puts the emphasis on what we do as bearing on our salvation. So these are some of the things that happen when we don't see the distinctions. And it just makes a mess of the Bible. It confuses people when they go to these Bible studies and read these books and hear these speakers because they walk away saying, I don't know if I've done those things. I don't know if I'm a Christian. And it steals, it steals joy. It steals assurance of salvation is lost. Um, I used to have a young lady that went to my church when I was pastoring and she'd go to this Bible study by a certain woman teacher and she would hear her teach and she'd, co she'd come home and she'd say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And I'd have to reassure her she's a Christian and she'd go again and get all messed up again. Just stop going to those Bible studies. But you can't have assurance of salvation. I make a very dogmatic statement. You cannot have assurance of salvation if your salvation depends on any way the commitments you make or your obedience or your surrender or anything that has to do with what I call performance. And that's a dare to anybody out there who says you can have assurance. Uh, any of the teachers who teach Calvinism, Lordship, Salvation, uh, They'll, they'll admit, they will admit, if they're honest, that they do not have 100% assurance. They'll say they have 99% assurance. They'll say they have a working assurance or that they can be, they're as sure as they can be. But my friends, you and I can say, I'm 100% sure that I'm saved because I have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the difference it makes. So assurance of salvation is lost and deep Christian truth is lost too. You go, see, if you take <clears throat> the conditions for sanctification in the Christian life and you put them in the gospel, then everything's a condition to be saved. Then you never really appreciate uh, something like Psalm 32, where David, who is definitely saved, is just uh, talking to the Lord because he's in a bad place. Many people believe Psalm 32 is a response to um, uh, the sin with Bathsheba, like Psalm 51. And, but there he's expressing his forgiveness. Or you take a book like 1 John. 1 John, which is often called a test of uh, salvation. That's the popular view. Almost every commentator, except for Dave's and a few others, to have it right. But you take these deep truths in 1 John, and if everything's a test of salvation, then we lose what 1 John is really about, and that's develop, developing an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And all that truth is lost. You take the book of Hebrews, for example, and the warnings. And people believe that the book of Hebrews is just to separate the sheep from the goats, the saved from the unsaved. And we look at those warnings and we say, all those people are going to hell. And we miss the deep truth about what those warnings are trying to say to us, you and me. And so it very much matters how we approach the scriptures. And I want to give you this model of A truth, B truth, which really I've already done, as a way of looking at scriptures. Because all the Bible is written really to uh, two different groups of people, or sometimes both. You have scriptures that are written to unsaved people. Uh, many people think the book of John, but you know you have parts of John that are written to believers. But some of the judgments in the Old Testament certainly written to unsaved people. 
you have portions of Scripture written to believers, and that would be the majority of the Scripture, of course. And uh, sometimes you just really can't tell it would maybe be to both, like the book of Proverbs, which is just general wisdom to everyone. But the context will tell you to whom it, it is written. Now here's some of the common distinctions that are confused. Um, if we don't learn to see distinctions in the New Testament or in the Bible. Salvation and discipleship are often confused. So all the things you have to do to be a disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Uh, Jesus says, love me more than your father, mother, brother, sisters. Those become conditions for salvation. Faith in Christ should be distinct from works for Christ. Salvation is one condition, faith, whereas discipleship with a Christian life, of course, involves many works. Another distinction would be grace for eternal life, and as opposed to merit for eternal rewards. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we're saved by grace through faith. But verse 10 says we're saved for the purpose of good works, so that should be a consequence, but it's definitely distinct. Sometimes we confuse the idea of eternal damnation with temporal discipline. The New Testament has a lot to say about the discipline of believers because God doesn't let his children run wild. And so there's severe discipline, and that's what I think the book of Hebrews is talking about in the warning passages. But if we, make, if we take that and bring it into salvation truth and make those passages warn about eternal damnation, we lose the truth that's relevant to you and me as Christians. It can, we can often confuse law and grace, the things that were said in the Old Testament or even in Jesus' day, with what we read in the rest of the New Testament. Um, the judgments are often confused. Many believers don't understand that there are two judgments. One is a, a judgment for all unbelievers, and the other is a judgment for we who are believers. The great white throne judgment would be for all unbelievers. But you and I, if we know Christ as Savior, don't face that judgment. We do face a judgment, however, called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment. And there we are to give an account of our lives to God. We will be held accountable for our lives. Now, this is a whole category, the judgment seat of Christ, that is often neglected uh, by even us uh, in, on the grace side of the issues. And some theologies don't even have a category for this because every time they see judgment, they automatically assume it's hell. It's a very shallow reading of Scripture. But if you pay careful attention, you'll see references to the judgment seat of Christ, not particularly in name, but the idea from Matthew through the very last verses of the book of Revelation. And um, the relationship is established in salvation is distinguished from the relationship that is enjoyed in the Christian life. Some common words are confused. Words that are commonly confused are the word salvation. The word salvation has a number of different uses, we'll see. Disciple is confused. What does that mean? Judgment, the use of fire when we come across the term fire in the New Testament, and uh, the word abide as opposed to believe. I won't talk about all of them, but just let me give you some examples. For, for example, let's look at that word salvation. And the Greek word verb, sozo, or noun, soteria. Basically, the idea means to be delivered or preserved from something. But it's used a number of ways in the Bible. In Matthew uh, 8, 25, should be the rest of the reference there, or you can look at 9, 22, 
uh, salvation can be from some danger, a physical danger like drowning at sea. It's even used in the New Testament to refer to uh, being healed of a disease. It can also be deliverance from enemies. Uh, a reference for that would be Luke 1.71. I think that's in the Song of Simeon. He talks about Israel being delivered or saved from its enemies. He uses that word. Deliverance from an undesirable result, just something from some, something like insignificance. 1 Timothy 2.16, a woman can be saved through childbirth. Now, obviously, that's not talking about justification salvation, is it? We'd have a population explosion. It's talking about uh, a woman, I think, in my interpretation, being saved from insignificance. She finds her life and significance in children, raising godly children. Uh, that's one of the ways she can find life and significance. Um, and then also deliverance from hell. Salvation is used in that sense. Um, you could jot down Ephesians 2.8 for that if you want to. Or Titus 3.5. So when you come across the word salvation in the, in the Bible, if you have an A truth, B truth mentality, then you're saying, well, which does it refer to? It's not automatically salvation from hell, which is the first thing many people jump to. So keep that in mind. Words make a difference. And the word judgment, as we said, um, usually the word crema uh, or the word bema refers to the judgment seat of Christ. Crema means judgment in general. Um, can speak of eternal judgment, like at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, it can refer to temporal judgment, like in the Hebrew warnings, Hebrews warnings, where I believe he's talking about very severe chastisement. And, of course, the judgment seat of Christ is a very common use that you'll find. So we come to the word judgment. We read the word judge. We want to say, is that a truth or b truth? Is it talking about eternal judgment or condemnation? Or is it talking about that time for Christians' accountability before the Lord? Uh, let's, let's go to another example, death. Um, the Greek words, again, didn't make it there. Uh, there's a number of different words for death. Uh, but you'll find it used in these ways. Acts chapter 5, for example, speaking of physical death. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira died. There's only one way to understand that, I think. And that, that would be they dropped over dead. Lazarus was dead. Uh, I think the word is used in John 11, too, of them. But there's a spiritual death in Genesis 2.17, where God said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now, they didn't drop over dead. So death must be something else also. And in that case, we would call it spiritual death. Spiritual death is when they were separated spiritually from God. When we think of death in the New Testament, it's helpful not to think in terms of cessation, but to think in terms of separation. Nobody ceases to be. Ananias and Sapphira still exist, but they've been separated from their body. When you and I die, we will continue to exist eternally, either in heaven or in hell. We're just separated from our bodies, temporarily, by the way. So think of it in terms of separation. Adam and Eve were separated from God by the fact they sinned and disobeyed him. So there, that would be the significance of spiritual death. 
I think it's also used in the terms of deadness also. And um, Romans chapter 6 is a good example of that. You could look at verse uh, um, 16, verse 21, verse 23. We don't have time to look at them. But if you look at verse 16, 21, 23, uh, you know 23 very well. The wages of sin is death. Okay? Now, we always use that in evangelistic presentations. But let me... Let me think with you a little bit. Romans has been talking about the sin of man and then moves on to justification and then it moves on to sanctification. And Romans 6 is near the beginning of that discussion of sanctification. Somebody said Romans doesn't look back. In other words, it proceeds forward in, in its discussion of salvation into the Christian life. Romans 6 is written to Christians. And saying that you can choose to serve sin or you can choose to serve Jesus Christ. And the wages of sin is death. He says, why do you want to go and do those things that were, you did when you were, were unsaved or dead? Um, do that which results in righteousness and life and holiness. And, and uh, I think death there is speaking of deadness in the Christian life. I have a friend. He was actually in my church, one of the church leaders. And uh, he became a medical doctor, even in spite of my warnings of how much money he'd be making and temptations he would have. He fell into temptation um, and had an affair and uh, long story short, cheated on his income taxes, ended up in jail. I remember the note that he wrote me, though. He says, this is worse than death. God's discipline and the consequences we bring on ourselves can be worse than death. It certainly is a deadness in the Christian life. The wages of sin is death to a Christian. If you choose to live in darkness, you'll walk in the shadows and you'll experience what you experienced before you were a Christian. I think that's what it's saying. Now, having said that, I would say it's okay to use it in evangelistic presentation, in my opinion, because you're telling it, it's the principle is still there, right? The wages of that person's sin is death, but it's just a different kind of death. It's an eternal death. So if, if you explain things carefully, I don't have a big deal, big problem using it at all in evangelistic presentation. And of course, there is eternal death, and that would be Revelations chapter 20, talking about the second death, the, the uh, lake of fire. So those are how some words are misused. Um, oh, another one, yeah. Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham's body being use dead, which means useless. In his old age, God told him he'd have a child, but uh, he being as good as dead, believe God. Now, when you're 90 years old and God says you're going to have a child, and to believe God, uh, he and Sarah had to get active again. You know, what I, you know what I mean? They had to get active again and act on God's promise. And even though their bodies felt dead and perhaps looked dead, they said, we're going to believe God. And uh, they did, of course, and had Isaac. So there's another example of how the word dead is used. So when we read the word dead in the New Testament, we don't want to jump to the conclusion as talking about some kind of eternal death or losing our salvation, but we have to say, how is it being used? And of course, the context should tell us. So how do we apply this to some <laughs> difficult passages? Let me show you, just think through a couple passages that are often, I think, misinterpreted, and we'll see how it, it kind of works here, all right? First of all, we have to make sure that we have good Bible study methods. Um, 
You know the three most important rules of Bible study, right? Context, context, context. It's an old joke or cliche, but we say it again because it should be your old joke and cliche, because if you do remember that, you will be well down the road to good Bible study methods. And by context, we mean looking at, first of all, the bigger circle of context. What testament is this written in? Is it in the Old Testament under the law? Is it in the New Testament in the church age under grace? Uh, Is it a transition period like the book of Acts? We want to know what is the context. And then we want to look at the book itself. When we look at the book, we're asking, who is it written to? Why was it written? What are the circumstances behind it? Who wrote the book? Things like that. Very important to pay attention to who the readers are and how they are identified. And then the problem that the author is trying to answer. And, um, and then we look at the passage itself. We look at the passage. Nothing is said in isolation. Everything is in a context of a paragraph, we would say in English language, uh, thought units. So we want to see how the passage is in that thought units. Does it be, does it be, is it connected by the word and, contrasted by the word but, explanatory by the word therefore or for? We want to make sure that we're looking at the passage as it is connected to the passages around it. I can't give you a Bible study methods class here, but these are just basics in understanding the context. And then the words themselves. And that's what we've been talking about. You want to get down to the words themselves. Define the words, maybe word studies. Is it a figure of speech? Or should it be taken in a plain sense or more literal sense? Those are the kind of things we would ask about words. So, check the context. That's the main thing. That would solve 90% of our Bible study issues if we just check the context. Define the words when we get to them. And compare other scriptures. It has to be consistent with the other scriptures. When James 2 says that Abraham was justified by his works, if we compare enough scriptures, we find there's a contrast or contradiction apparently with what James what Paul is saying in Romans 4 3 and 4 when he talks about being justified freely by his grace or Galatians 2 when we're justified by grace through faith so is James a contrast Uh, if, if it is we interpret the less clear verse in light of the more clear passages you know that probably already But it's very important to compare other scriptures to make sure you're consistent. And then test it theologically. Uh, Our doctrine of justification is that God imputes righteousness to us on the basis of faith. And when we read that Abraham was justified by his works, we know we have a theological problem. If grace is absolutely free, like Romans 11.6 teaches or Romans 3.24 teaches, freely by his grace... And then somebody tries to tell us that grace is costly and shows us some verse um, like we have to pay the price or deny ourselves, take up the cross. Then we have a theological problem. So we test it theologically. Let's look at a a couple passages. I'm not going to go through the total passage, the complete passage, but what I want to do is just show you how to approach it with this A truth, B truth model in mind. Okay, so we'll, I, we'll look at some verses that I think are often misunderstood 
And Matthew 20, Matthew 16, verse 26, our first one. Now this verse, you've heard it before many times. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, how many times, have you ever heard that preached evangelistically, an evangelistic message? Have you? Not in this church. Very good. Very good. But it's probably a standard of evangelists everywhere, you know. You can gain the whole world, but if you go to hell, what, what do you really profit? Well, that's the common approach to it. But let's think through this A truth, B truth. Let's think through the context of what's being said here. If we back up, we find out that Jesus has just told his disciples in verses like 20 through 22 that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things and die. And this is where uh, Peter says to him, no, Lord, you're not going to do that. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So now Jesus has just said that I'm going to die. And now he's saying, if you want to be my disciples, here's what you have to do. And verse 24 tells us, if we look at this context, who is he talking to? It says right there, his disciples, right? So he wouldn't be telling his disciples how to have eternal life. Especially, in fact, of the fact that his commitment is taking him to his death. Now, he's going to speak to his disciples about their commitment. And he begins, if that if they really want to be their disciples, he says, let them uh, come after me as a term for discipleship. Follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To go to Jerusalem, Jesus would deny his natural desires to live. He was taking up his cross, meaning that he was facing death for their sakes. And he says, if you want to be my disciples, you need to be willing to die as well and follow me. I'm following God's will. You follow God's will. Those kinds of things are critical to discipleship. Not, not conditions for salvation. So whoever desires to lose his life, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever saves his life for my sake will find it. Now, there you have the word save, and we have to ask, um, what is the meaning of it? What does it mean to lose your life? Is he talking about going to hell, as many people would interpret it? What does he mean about, mean about saving your life? In the New King James Version, that word is used, save, and it is the word soteria, uh, or from sozo. It is the word sozo. Save your life, is he talking about being eternally saved? Or is he talking about being delivered from something? And what about this word soul or life? When we, when we read verse, here's an interesting thing. When we, now, I'm talking from the New King James Version. So in verse 25, he uses the word soul. I'm sorry, he uses the word life, losing and saving your life. But in verse 26, he talks about uh, the soul. He uses the word soul. Your verse, version may do it differently, but did you know that that's actually the same word? And I wish that the New King James Version had been consistent here and just translated the word soul as life, like it is in verse 25. There would be less confusion. Because when we, use the, when we talk about saving the soul, people automatically think about eternal salvation. And that's a phrase that you really ought to track through the scriptures on its own. 
And you'll find that saving the soul is not a term that's used of eternal salvation, but it's used of delivering our spiritual life from the consequences of sin, and it's a sanctification term. And so we look at this passage, and we say, if he's speaking to the disciples about commitments that they need to make to be more of a disciple, then he can't be talking about going to heaven and hell. So what does it mean then um, to find your life and to lose your life? If you lose your life, if you try to find your life, you'll lose it. If you try to lose your life, you'll save it. What he's talking about is the life as in its essence. What is life to us? You you see the slogans or T-shirts, you know, that says uh, football is life. Golf is life. In other words, if I wore a shirt that said golf is life, that means that that's what I live for. That's the most important thing to me. And that's what defines me. I'm a golfer. And that's, I kind of build my life around that. And what Jesus is saying, whatever your agenda is for life, or whatever it is that you have made the most important thing in your life, if you give that to God, you'll really save your life because he gives life back to you, life abundant, John 10.10. The abundance of life. We think, oh man, I can't do without golf. God says, oh, just, just let me show you what you can do without. And then he, he gives us life back. You remember the story of um, Aaron Ralston? What was the movie made? Was it called 172? Where he went to um, Blue Dog, Blue Man Canyon in Utah, went hiking, went down in a crevice with a big 800-pound rock rolled on his arm. Is it 72 hours? 170, 172. I don't forget, but Nick Franco coming back. So he's pinned down there, and for three days, he cannot escape, and he, he takes his phone, and he starts dictating goodbye messages to his family. And on the third day, he realizes that he has this cheap multi-tool that he carries with him, and with dull blades and everything. And he thinks that the only way I'm going to get out of here is to do what I have to do. If you've seen the movie, he starts to cut through his skin. Takes him a couple days to do that, though, and he finally gets down to the bone. And uh, I think he waited till the next morning, the fourth morning, and then he torqued himself so strongly it just broke the bone. But he's not free yet, because what's inside the bone? Or next to the bone, you've got that nerve that runs down, the white nerve. And he knew that would be the hardest part, (laughs) because you know when you touch the nerve, that's just tremendous pain. So... I think it was until the fifth morning that he waited and got up enough courage to sever the nerve. He did that. He broke free. He passed out, I believe. And when he woke up, he was free. He tied a tourniquet around his arm. He was able to climb up. Long story short, German couple found him hiking out. and His life was saved. Here's what he says. He says, that day, I didn't lose my arm. I found my life. See, sometimes you have to give up what's near and dear to you in order to find the fullness of life. Someone's put it this way, and I really like it. When life ceases to be the issue, life becomes the reality. When life ceases to be the issue, life becomes the reality. So my friends, if you're holding on to something you don't think you can do without 
Try giving it to God and see if he doesn't give it back to you a hundredfold. Now I'm preaching, so let's go on. You see how we can lose the precious and deep truth of Matthew chapter 16 if we just take it as a, a truth, heaven and hell passage? You, you see what I'm, doing, what I'm doing here? But if we take it as truth spoken to disciples, then we see, man, there's all kinds of implications for me here about how I live my life and how I can serve God. You see why it's so important to see these distinctions? Another passage, John 8, chapter 8, verse 31 as another example. And this passage is often misinterpreted as well. And so we have John 8, and we will begin reading uh, in verse 30. Now, this, these are John's words in the midst of a long dialogue with the Jews. John inserts these comments in verse 30. He says, as Jesus spoke these words, many believed in him. Now, do you have any reason to second-guess John about what he means by that? John says they believe. Good enough for me. I hope it's good enough for you. Then Jesus said to those who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. Disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, you see, some people say, well, they really didn't believe unto salvation. Because Jesus is saying, you've got to abide in his word in order to be a disciple. And they interpret disciple as somebody who's saved. In fact, commentators have even called them believing, unbelieving believers. Or believing non-Christians. And the problem is, is the, in the context, they go on in this heated discussion and Jesus actually says, you know, you're of your father, the devil. And so they say, see, they have to be unsaved. But they're not from, okay, so the context is Jesus is talking to the, this Jewish crowd. John inserts an editorial comment to help us understand what's going on in the meantime. Now, John is actually, that's one of his techniques as you read through the book of John. You'll notice that every now and then he inserts editorial comments for the reader for the reader's sake, to know what's going on. Jesus was baptizing in uh, the river of Jordan, I think, beyond Anan or something like that. He says, because there was much water there. John gives these little explanatory things. So John is inserting a very small comment, but he wants to, us to know that something very important has happened. That in the midst of this argument with this big crowd, this little group of Jews had believed in him. And Jesus stopped at some point to talk to them and address them. And then he goes back to the discussion with the big crowd and they start throwing rocks and insults. So the context then, I've just kind of shown you how we, how we look at the context. Um, but what about that word abide? You see, there are other theologies that want to say that that word abide, which means to remain, continue, it has the implications of obedience, means to be in a close relationship with something. There are other theologies that are saying, see, Jesus is saying that you must continue in and obey God's word to be saved, to be his disciple. But, you know, in, with John, in a book that uses the word believe almost a hundred times, mostly in terms of salvation, that would be a strange shift, wouldn't it, as a condition for salvation to use the word abide because it is a different word with a different meaning. 
And if we don't understand that distinction and we take a, a, mean, a definition of abide as a condition for salvation out of John like that and go to 1 John, we've got all kinds of problems. So abide means to continue in. It is not a condition for, for salvation. It's not the same as believing in him. And then we have the word disciples here. If we were to trace the word disciple, we would find that it's used for people who follow, usually for people who follow Jesus. But it's just a general term for a learner or a follower. It does not mean to be a Christian. Now, the only place some, some people make an exception is, well, the book of Acts, all the Christians are called disciples. And that's true. The reason for that is all the Christians were disciples. <laughs> In the book of Acts, they're eagerly following Jesus. And when there's an exception, they're called out and it's explained, like Elias the sorcerer uh, and Ananias and Sapphira. But they're the exceptions. The rule in Acts is all the believers were eagerly studying and meeting together. They were definitely followers. So, so we want to compare other scriptures. Are there other scriptures that would contrast um, with this? We want to test it theologically. Uh, is, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, does that bear out in this passage? Not if we change that word abide into a condition for salvation. Uh-oh. Look at this passage. How about James chapter 2? <clears throat> Let me show you how I would approach James chapter 2 with the idea of trying to discern A truth, B truth. You're familiar with this passage. It's, very, it's used very, very, very often by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christians. Do we mean the same thing they mean? Beginning in verse 14. For example, at the end, if we look at the verse 14, I'm not going to read the whole passage. What does a prophet, brethren, if someone says he has faith and, and does not have works, can faith save him? Now, your Bibles might say, can that faith save him? I think it's more accurate to say, can faith save him as an abstract um, use, as the New King James translates it. So, can faith alone save a person is what James seems to be asking. And in verse 26, we have the well-known saying, faith without works is dead. So, can a person believe in Jesus Christ and not have any works? If we don't see works, then that person's not saved. That's the tr traditional interpretation. That's what caused Martin Luther to toss and turn in his bed and eventually throw out the epistle of James because it contrasted theologically with his beloved Romans and Galatians. Okay? But how are we to understand that? Oh, I wish I could have a conversation with Martin today. <laughs> Not that I could teach him anything, but, uh, you know, here's what I see. I would just say, Martin, here's what I see. I look at the context, and I see that verse 14 and 26 is a discussion about the importance of our works accompanying our faith. But wait a minute. When I look at verse uh, 13, he's talking to believers and how they treat other believers mercifully or not mercifully. And in the preceding verse, he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment, but he's talking to believers. It's very clear he's talking to believers. Verse 1 of chapter 2, my brethren. Okay. In verse 14, my brethren. So he's talking about a judgment for believers. Remember, we talked about that. 
And then I go to the end of the passage and I look at the following context, chapter 3 and verse 1. My brothers, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter... There it is again, judgment. The bookends for this controversial passage are judgment and judgment. What judgment is he talking about? The Bema seat. A truth or B truth? B, you got it. So would you think that verses 20, 14 through 26 would probably be A truth or B truth? Okay, that's a good guess. That's a good start for approaching the passage. Let's see if it bears out as B truth. And uh, so we look at words like saved. Now, the big question is, what is he talking about being saved from? And of course, the A-truth interpretation says it's, this person is being saved from hell if they have works that accompany their faith. But in the context, could he be saved from something else? How about saved from a negative judgment at the judgment seat of Christ? If a person appears at the judgment seat of Christ without any, and he's a true believer, but he doesn't have works there, can he be delivered? Can he have a good judgment from the Lord, or will he, can he be delivered from a bad judgment? Well, that's a view that's consistent with the free grace approach. There are other free grace people who take different interpretations, but uh, I kind of like that one because the context, the bookends for the passage are the judgment seat of Christ. What does he mean by dead? You see... The A-truth interpretation will read this and say, well, dead means uh, non-existent or unsaved. But wait a minute. Uh, aren't there other definitions for dead like useless? If somebody has a true faith but no works, isn't that a useless faith? In fact, in verse 20, many of your Bibles translate it useless. Right? Am I right? You seeing the word useless there in your Bible? And then he goes to the end of the passage, Abraham was justified by works. Oh, we got a big problem there. That's what really, I think, got Martin Luther. Abraham was justified by works. When Galatians, I mean, Genesis 15, 6 says he was justified by faith, and then that verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Abraham's definitely justified by faith. What does he mean, justified by works? And he was called the friend of God. Well, who called him a friend of God? Other people. So Abraham was justified before other people by his works. By offering Isaac, he was displaying his faith to those who around saw him, and they said, hey, this guy's a friend of God. I think Romans 4, verses 1 and 2, if Abraham could have been justified by works, I think it says, if he, Abraham could have been justified, I forget how it goes, but it, off, it offers the possibility that he could have been justified but not before God. That's how it says it. So in other words, a man can be justified, a person can be justified before other people showing their faith, giving, giving evidence of their faith, but not before God. Now that, the works don't justify him before God. The faith does. So we have to understand justification. Uh, and then other scriptures. We want to compare other scriptures. Does it contrast with scriptures? Of course it does If in the A-truth interpretation. But in the B-truth interpretation, we now have a consistent approach where James is talking to believers about a future accountability and the usefulness of their faith, about helping people in need. And then um, is it theologically consistent? Well, 
in the B-truth interpretation, it would be theologically consistent with our doctrine of justification through faith. Whereas if we interpret it the other way, we're wrong. Now, why is it that you hear this passage used over and over again by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? Have you ever sat down and talked to them? They'll jump to James 2 right away. Never fails. And yet Christians use the passage in the same way. Your works have to be there or you're not saved. I admit that the, the cults may put it up front, we call front-loading the gospel, but Christians put it in the back. What's the difference? They have to be there to be saved. So, friends, I'm just trying to show you how I would approach passages using, in my head, this very simple model, A truth, B truth. And looking at the context and looking at the other passages, looking at the words, comparing it uh, to other scriptures and testing it theologically. And if you do that, you'll keep a clear gospel. And more importantly, you'll free people from the performance standard, the legalistic performance standard by which they always have to prove themselves to be worthy of God. It's a liberating way of approaching the scriptures. So I commend it to you and um, trust that you'll use it. I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would keep it clear and that we would have clear understanding of Scripture. Be faithful to what you said. Do our work that we might always proclaim a clear gospel, but then also understand the truths that you have for us in the Christian life. So I pray, Father, as we ponder these things, that you would sink them into our heart that we might not forget and that we might uh, better live for you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.